During the 90s, Ireland became the country to be reckoned with, and at the same time as more countries wanted to participate and compete, many dedicated fans also began to lose interest. Today, it does not work at all to copy the previous year's winning concept, but in the 90s it was a smart move and in 96, after Norway won the competition the year before with an ethnic song with clear new age vibes, all countries that went on to end up on the podium had adopted the same concept. As usual in the 90s, Ireland drew the longest straw and won the competition. This is Eurovision Legends, I'm your host, Emil Lövström, and today I have invited the winner from 96, Emer Quinn. Welcome to Eurovision Legends, Emer Quinn. Hello, it's very nice to be here. How are you? Good, yeah. I, you know, I was, um, I was very interested in the remarks you made there um, about the concept and the trend for embracing all things kind of folk and new age. And I think um, in some ways it was a concept, but in, in other ways it was just, um, you know, a zeitgeist that was there. So I'm not sure that it was entirely deliberate or whether or not we were all just swept up in a trend, you know, because yeah. um, I do think that Secret Garden for sure was in the middle of that. But Secret Garden, you have to remember, followed the, the second winner um, from 95, which is basically Paul and Charlie, won it obviously with Rock and Roll Kids, but the the, the enormous uh, other winner to come out of that concert was Riverdance. And, um, and that was very much embracing, you know, ethnic culture and music and origins and um, cultural history. So I think there was very much a, a trend for that at the time and an appetite. It was fashionable, essentially. And then uh, equally, I suppose what happened was, which was really quite interesting, Brendan Graham, who wrote the song that I sang, The Voice, which is quite a, a political song um, about Ireland and, again, uh, cultural origins. He had actually entered that in the competition in 94. It didn't qualify. But within this trend and fashion and appetite for things of a more ethnic origin, it did qualify for the National Song Contest. So it's interesting. Uh, well, I was very interested in your opening comments and actually how you know insightful they are to a point to, to see that there was it was trending at the time from a point of view of public appetite and consumption for arts. Well, this is fantastic. You've already answered 10 of my questions. <laughs> As you said, the composer was Brennan Graham. And actually, in a previous episode with Paul Harrington and Charlotte McGettigan, they told us that their song was submitted some years before too, but was refused. That's Which right. And the demo of your song, The Voice, was sung by the group Dervish, that later represented Ireland in 2007. That's right, yeah. We must talk about the lyrics of The Voice. It is very beautiful and touching, and as you said, it was very political and clearly aimed at the English occupying power. Well, I'm not sure if you could say it was aimed at at the occupying power, more so than just aimed at... um, 
a gathering of consciousness that was very much um, on the island at the time when Brendan wrote it, you know, because this you're, you're talking about the early 90s when, when the lyric was written. And um, if you think of, of the peace accords, you know, that, that came just shortly afterwards, you have to see how, how that was very much in the air for us. Um, and so rather than it being, I suppose, something that was being addressed to an occupying force, um, personally, it was more of a, a chronicle um, of our feeling at the time, which was that we have our past and we have our history, we have our identity. And not only do we have it, but we hear it on the wind. It's in the elements. It's all around us. It's in our island. It's in our sea. It's in our air. It's in the leaves. It's in the trees. It's everywhere and it's ours. And because um, as a culture and as a nation, the ownership of our own culture had been challenged um, or the ownership of our own language had been taken away from us uh, on pain of death, actually, punishable by death to practice your, your culture, your religion, your, your language. Um, there was a rising up in the period after um, imperialistic rule, um, which is, is only since, is since 1921. Um, there was a rising up of pride in our culture and a, a rebirth, a renaissance in love for our language. An, an understandable anger for the period of time that we had been denied that, but also a recognition that there was no point in living in the past, but very much standing on the past to move into the future. And the really important part in the lyric, if you, if you can understand there's a part of the song where all of the instrumentation drops away and it's just this very primal rhythm going underneath. And it says, bring me your peace and my wounds, they will heal. For me, as an Irish woman, singing that at the time was extraordinary, getting emotional now, but it's extraordinarily moving. And still to this point, and once I was able to sing that after the peace accord, I really felt like we have achieved something. And sometimes culture and cultural works can reflect that progress and they can become significant to even pop culture and things like Eurovision they still reflect the depths of people's experiences. And um, that became a very significant lyric throughout the 90s. Yeah, and thankfully, the Good Friday Agreement was signed two years after you won in Oslo yeah. and has so far led to a lasting peace in Northern Ireland. Well, precisely. No, it has. And it is, it is, it's signed into international law. It is an international accord And, um, and so it needs to be respected and honored going into the future. And um, you have to say that um, you would really be hopeful that everybody on, who is a, an interested party and all of the actors who are influential in, um, in moving forward around the question of a border on the island of Ireland, that they would act 
responsibly. Um, and I know that certainly from the Irish side and from the EU side, there is a huge amount of, um, of delicate attention given to just how sensitive this subject is. And a physical border is um, a very delicate thing to introduce into uh, such a fresh um, piece As we all know, in Eurovision, the 90s was Ireland's decade, with four victories, of which you and your song became the last one. But before we go as far as to talk about your victory, I would like to know how come you ended up in the national pre-selection in 96 for Ireland in the first place? Uh, it's, a, it's a really lovely story, actually, to be honest. Um, because I had no um, involvement or anything to do with with um, entering Eurovision or anything like that beforehand. My only involvement um, on the whole scene was that I was a member of a, an Irish um, classical chamber choir called Anuna. And some people will know Anuna because they do have an association with Eurovision insofar as they're the choir that sing that very haunting opening section for the intervalactic river dance in, in, um, in 94. So what happened when Anuna show that that became Riverdance, they started a tour with Riverdance and they remained with the show for quite a long time until they, they eventually split from it and Riverdance got their own troupe of singers. And um, I had desperately wanted to be part of Anuna because my studies at the time were classical music and, and, and studying classical singing. And I really, really loved, I loved choral singing. I wanted to be a professional chorister. Anuna was was the only kind of really professional performing choir that wasn't associated with an institution in Ireland. And I desperately wanted to be part of it. And I love, love, loved the music, still do. And so I joined Anuna as one of their principal um, soloists. And Brendan Graham, who was the writer of my song and the writer of Rock and Roll Kids, he was at a Christmas concert that I was singing in. So this was like December 95. And he was sitting in the audience and I was singing a song that he, another song that he wrote called Winter Fire and Snow. And he heard me singing that and little did I know that he had this song entered in the National Song Contest in the pre-selection. And it had been selected. And as you quite rightly mentioned, um, Brendan, who was ran a publishing company at the time, had its close associations with this Irish amazing trad group called Dervish. And so they had demoed the song for him. But they weren't available or interested in doing Eurovision at the time. It wasn't part of their plan. So he needed to find a singer. And so, you know, for me, I had no idea that this person who was going to have such a profound impact on my life and influence the, basically the final path of which way my life would go was sitting in the audience at that moment and um, thinking of proposing something which to me would seem completely outlandish and yet would change, literally change the course of my life. Did you try to compete in the Eurovision any time before? To compete in the Eurovision Song Contest was never something that had ever occurred to me in my life before that. I loved Eurovision just like everybody else in Ireland. And as you say, Ireland had won so many times and all of that. But um, for me to sing in Eurovision, first of all, I didn't think my voice was uh, appropriate for the material that I could not do a good job on a pop ballad. I wouldn't be the right singer. So when he came to me and he said, you know, I have a song for the National Song Contest, I said, oh, really, I don't know whether I'm the right person for you. You know, I don't know that I can do that for you. And he said, no, no, it's it's not a typical Eurovision song. It, not that I was incredibly honored that he would would offer this opportunity to me, mm. but I genuinely doubted his judgment. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like... 
I really don't think I'm your person. And he said, no, no, I think you are, you know. And so I'm so glad that he stuck with me because he said, you know, listen to the song. I listened to the song. He gave me like a cassette tape. Can you believe it was a cassette tape? And, um, and I had to listen to this cassette tape. And then he said that let's go into you know recording studio and record you singing it and see how it sounds and so he actually helped me embrace the role of performer of popular music rather than classical music with 105 points which was more than 30 points ahead of the runner-up dev mcnamara was that correctly pronounced dev mcnamara was it Uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I don't even remember any of that detail. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, you won the national final in Ireland, but since so many countries wanted to compete, a pre-qualifying round was arranged to remove seven countries. It should also be said that Norway never needed to qualify because they hosted the competition. But the result of this qualifying round leaked out and it was apparently won by Sweden, with Ireland coming second and the United Kingdom finishing third. Were you made aware of this leaked result before the actual contest? I actually didn't know that till you've just told me that this moment. I never knew. Oh, so that's really interesting. Um, but you know, like like everything else, this competition is is held on a day, and then whatever day the vote is held is the day that the the thing wins. So. It was interesting that Sweden won a, a pre-selection thing and, and the UK came third. Um, yeah, that's cool. I think a lot of people felt quite passionately about the UK song that year um, because it was such a pop hit. It was a great pop hit, you know. It was it rocked up the chart in so many European countries and a lot of people still feel passionately that it was a winner in that sense. And certainly commercially, it was um, from a point of view of chart success. It was the main winner out of the competition in that year. At the end of the day, in any given year, Um, with the exception of 2020, there is a Eurovision Song Contest on a night and there is one winner. So I always very happy to be that winner in 1996. I am thinking here, Ireland had already won three times in four years and I guess that many people in your country didn't want the country to win a fourth time for economic reasons. Do you remember any such discussions before the competition in Oslo? Well, I think if, if you mentioned that discussion to me in the context of 2019 or 2020 the only answer that I could possibly come back to you with is fake news because it is uh, one of those things where it is a sensational headline uh, where people put out this float this idea and send it out like oh we can't afford the contest nobody wants it nobody wants to it's 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 a really cool story right it's simply not true because actually I have very close proximity to the broadcaster from a personal point of view and I know from a personal point of view that it is utterly inaccurate um, and actually from a point of view of exchequer revenue um, the amount of extra tourism and trade that it brings into a capital city is immense so there was never any question that it was something that they tried to deliberately lose and I've heard this repeated over and over again I've heard it repeated for after after me for Paul and Charlie and it's but it's it's actually completely false well great there we killed that rumor yeah can you take us back to your memories from the host city ah uh, yeah well 
Austin is a very beautiful city. I remember so many things about it. There were so many beautiful events, actually. They put on all of these lovely events for, for us. Uh, I remember the Minister for Culture, as far as I remember, a really splendid woman who also had a personal association with Eurovision as a singer, if my memory recalls. Yes, that's right. Åsa Cleveland was the Minister of Culture in 96. Yes, she hosted us. Um, in her ministry and um, that was a beautiful evening. It was a wonderful opportunity for the different contestants to chat with each other. I remember a really lovely duet uh, couple from the Netherlands that year. They were so friendly too. Also, I had a great band with me of trad players, of Irish traditional players, and everybody threw their, you know, you have to throw your party, you know, you you throw a party for each country in a bar, a restaurant, whatever, and the Irish party was always a lot of fun because there was a lot of live music, and of course, yeah, Sir Terry Wogan comes along. But And then what was really interesting was, was that we had uh, one of the tabloid newspapers had heard that the Irish song was doing quite well in rehearsals and, to, you know, with the odds on it were doing well. So they approached me to to take photographs for them for their newspaper so they gave me this camera I was plodding around taking behind the scenes pictures for them I looked at Oslo a little bit through the lens of the camera as well which is quite which is quite interesting uh Gina G I remember she had to do because her her song was doing so well in the charts she had to do top of the pops from like the roof studio in the hotel so it was basically like you know, we were living in Planet Eurovision, but that happened to be Oslo, which was a very beautiful host city. The press wrote about Norway, Sweden, Ireland, United Kingdom and Croatia as frontrunners to win. Do you remember who you personally thought was your biggest competitor? Um, to be honest, I didn't expect to win. And I didn't really go out there thinking that we would win because... Okay, so Secret Garden had won the year before, but Secret Garden's song, having won the year before, was a very, very, very unusual Eurovision winner. And I thought, well, there's not going to be two really unusual winners in, in a row, you know. So so I thought I'd go out and have a lot of fun and try and get through the thing without, you know, dying of nerves, you know, <laughs> collapsing with with fright. And um, my main goal was to go out and be as professional as I possibly could and, and try and get through the thing without being, you know, as I say, paralyzed with nerves. So so winning it um, for me was was just far too ambitious a thought to, to have crossed my mind, to be completely honest. <laughs> um, it would definitely have been overshooting myself. So so in the end, um, I didn't see the other people. I wasn't at all competitive in my own mind about it. I didn't see the other people as being... Um, my competition. Um, I just saw them as very much as being other contestants, other compatriots, and anything else was a bonus. I say that 100, anybody who knows me knows that I mean that 100% genuinely. And to this day, I still am not a competitive person. Unfortunately, I really wish I was, but I am the least competitive person that that I know. (laughs) Did you have any personal favorites among the participants? Yeah, I really liked Croatia, I have to say. I did really like that.
Turkey that year as well too. lot of the songs um sweden was a beautiful song you know they that was a really nice entry too song I have to say because it just wasn't my kind of music but I can absolutely understand the appeal of it she wasn't the best vocalist in the world so I think that was probably why I didn't enjoy it so much I didn't enjoy the performance but I thought the song was was fun you know I thought you would say France since you made a cover of their song 10 years later oh of course no you're absolutely right you're absolutely right because but again you know it's really strange um the French song um Diwana Pugale for me became a song that became part of my repertoire in a way I don't really associate it with being in the competition at the time because it was something that stayed permanently in my life. beautiful beautiful song very very interesting that that France sent a song in Breton which I loved again very political song both of those kind of Celtic nations um, entered political songs that that one was about the language about the Breton language a really gorgeous song Norway did everything they could to give Eurovision a new modern style and used a blue screen for the voting section with a 3D scoreboard. Yeah. And also each entry got a personal touch with various new high-tech camera effects in what for us today seems like one big mess and not particularly modern nor tasteful at all. Mm. I can imagine that this was quite important since setting the right mood for a song like The Voice is crucial. And some fancy schmancy techno-junk from an enterprising Norwegian technician could ruin that carefully crafted mood. Yeah. Do you remember how much say you had about this part of the presentation of your performance? Right. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Actually, to be fair, um, I think it's fair to say that by the 90s, the when the competition was quite small, I think as the productions were very much just a, a filmed theatrical performance, I think the singer was invited to have views, etc., etc., Once it became a very highly technical uh, production, they they tried to minimize the amount of people who were in the production circle. So I know that it seems really dated now. The technology, looking back, and it's quite quaint, and as you say, you know, not not so not so pleasing. Yes. Um, but at the time, you know, it's it, this is the this is the innovation. This is the technology that we've built our our current technologies on. And at the time, it was groundbreaking. Uh, it was an absolute nightmare for them. 
they were de- dealing with so many teething problems that they really brought very few people into their production circle. So in the box with the producer and the director during the rehearsals from Ireland was a producer from our national broadcaster, the guy's called Noel Curran, and also the composer of the songs, Brendan Graham. And they were the two people who had the input into, into the say with the production values, the lighting, the treatment. As you say, there's like that kind of slow-mo moving thing that happens. They were the ones with the, who had the input into that. And, and nobody from the performing group was invited to contribute to that at all. Before that, obviously, the pre-production that went on in Ireland, we had a say in the arrangement and the costuming, etc. But for the technical rehearsals, it would have just been utter chaos had they allowed everybody from the performance group in, in to have a say. Because as I say, they were just barely coping with the things from a technical point of view, because with innovation comes headaches, you know. Yes. Um. So so, yeah, they were innovative and it is quaint and dated now, but it was uh, it was extremely full on. Um, and so, you know, as performers, we just had to feel comfortable and trust our producers, which I did. I trusted Brendan Graham entirely. I trusted no current so much that I married him. You wore a very fairytale-ish white dress with gold embroidery on, and your entire appearance suited the song perfectly, highlighting the mysteriousness of it all. Was this choice of dress your own? Um, certainly I was involved in the choice of clothing, which I think is only appropriate, you know, but um, it was again another... A very thoughtful uh, process, um, very much led by the by the broadcaster producer again, Noel Curran, um, in Ireland beforehand. So they um, approached various different uh, clothing designers, and this woman, Mary Grant, was was the successful um, applicant in the end, and she um, she made the, yeah these really beautiful pieces of clothing and. The dress was, you know, it had a nod to something past. It was, but it was using very contemporary fabrics. It was, and it was a beautiful silk chiffon with this gorgeous applique. Stunning. I still have it. It's a stunning creation. And it was really beautiful with the song. It was very collaborative, but I have to say I was very trusting and unwilling to be led by their best judgment. With 162 points, you won the Eurovision, nearly 50 points ahead of the runner-up Norway. What has this victory meant for your career, you think? Oh, it's hard to know even where to start. <laughs> um, it, it meant quite a lot of things, to be honest. Um, but I suppose, firstly, the main thing was that it, it consolidated my wish to be uh, a singer and a musician in my life. From a point of view of a chosen profession, um, not only consolidated it, but I guess in some ways it kind of validated it, you know, because you meet people and they, they're studying music and they, they work working really hard at honing a craft, but they, they're also, you know, studying concurrently for different degrees and, you know, they want to have a backup plan. And because the idea of earning your living from the, from the arts is a precarious one. So, Um, for me, it, it validated that as an aspiration because I was very early on the, I was very early on my path, um, on my professional path. I'd only just started out. I was still at university, so I could have easily been, I suppose, knocked off my path. So to say that this was encouraging. <laughs> 
but I was at that crossroads, you know, where I needed encouragement to believe that it wasn't a pipe dream, that it was something doable, that this was realistic, that I could aspire to being a professional musician. So first of all, yeah, validated my choices, which was really great. But then it also allowed me to branch out because, as I said before, my my biggest ambition was that I'd be a professional chorister, which, to be fair, is a very niche uh, dream. (laughs) (laughs) You know, many people who enter your vision have been dreaming of it for a long time. I felt in some ways I was actually, you know, an interloper who was taking somebody else's dream, you know, and. So I didn't have material ready to release. I wasn't a studio artist. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a record company. You know, I I was very, I was very much just a student with this material, sang this one song, that's all I had. So for me, um, afterwards, again, as I say, it was a new world for me. It was a new way of presenting music for me. It was a new way of singing for me. And so I needed to very much explore what that meant for me on a personal level. So I took a step back. I learned how to write my own music. I learned how to compose. I I set up my own record label. I recorded my own music, produced it, and, you know, learned the the industry that I had found myself catapulted in. I studied it, uh, you know, as a novice. And... um, I, w- I would never have been made very good, say, girl band material, for example, because I'm just not a very good front person for somebody else's idea. You know, I need to uh, be very much in control of the the quality of what's being presented. Um, and even if people like it, if they don't like it, that's, you know, that's art. But I need it, it to sound like me and it needs to come from me or else I just don't see the point. And so... Winning the Eurovision really meant that. It meant that change of direction. All of a sudden, I was thrown into this entire world. Have you tried to compete in Eurovision again? No, I've never, ever, ever considered competing as a contestant again. But that's not to say that I wouldn't consider um, putting some songs in. For sure, that could be fun. Um, yeah, I wouldn't rule that out at all, but I wouldn't compete again as a contestant because you can't do any better than win it. So why try? But I guess you have been offered many songs to sing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But my answer is just a very, very plain no. Nowadays, Ireland is not at all enjoying the same rate of success as when you and the other Irish competitors dominated the contest in the 90s. What would you do to get Ireland back to its former glory? Uh, I don't know. It's a question that I'm asked a lot and I actually don't really know why it is the way it is. Um, The Eurovision in Ireland is... um, People are very affectionate about it. But there's there's a huge contingent of um, of creators of content of of musical content and songs, and performers who um, who don't take it very seriously, um, and that's fine. But it doesn't have the same uh, weight professionally in Ireland as it does in many of the countries in mainland Europe. Um, and now living in living on the continent, or living in Switzerland, and Um, with my close proximity to to Eurovision um, through my husband's work, I see just how seriously the competition is taken in other countries and the potential for the the participants, not even winners by any manner of means, even just somebody who's gotten into a semi-final and not even gotten as far as the final, but the contestants for a particular country can become utter megastars in their in their domestic market. 
And so it's a really viable um, stepping stone and tool professionally for, for people. In Ireland, not so much though. You know, your vision professionally is, is not taken massively seriously. In a sense, you take quite a risk um, participating because just being the contestant in Ireland doesn't carry any credibility, you need to win it. So from a point of view of a credibility, I think people feel there's a risk associated with being involved in it um, because it isn't valued in Ireland from a credibility point of view the same way as it is in a lot of other countries. So I think in many ways, this is um, this is what the problem is. In the 80s and 90s, there, there were more credible um, songwriters and artists who were interested in it. I mean, we still have produced some major stars, like Jedward, for example, incredible pop concept, amazing guys, really, really fun. social media I think they're so fun I love them they're so positive <laughs> they're so they're so ridiculously funny because you know they're 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 scathing and sarcastic and sarcastic but it's all with this beautiful saccharine sweet delivery and it's really smart and you know they're they use your vision for good you know and I can't see why other bands couldn't in Ireland too You and Brandon Graham have kept in contact and he has written several songs for you since 96 and some of them we can hear on your new album, Eru. Was that correctly pronounced? Yeah, Eru. Eru? Eru. Eru. That's it, well done. <laughs> and on this album you have written several songs together. That's right. And the last song on this album is a new version of The Voice. How come you wanted to make a new version of it? Uh, because you know what the song, right? The voice. I've been singing it with the orchestra forever, but um, you know, since '96, when I sang it in your vision, the orchestra was clearly there. You know, but the orchestra weren't on the original recording, and I've sung this song with orchestra all over the world, but never ever recorded it with orchestra. So when I was doing these orchestral sessions for all of this new material. I, th- I thought, you know what I have to do is sing this with the orchestra, particularly because on the recording, it's the Orti Concert Orchestra. And they are the, the the orchestra that I have the closest professional relationship with over the last two decades. And so many times we've performed this song together and they adore it and I adore it. The energy that comes from having this song which is a really really building a song that builds slow powerful energy having that with like 40 people in the room at the same time involved in the making of that music is uh is really powerful so i felt you know there's no way that i can get this orti concert orchestra in a room to record my music and not uh record the voice it would just seem to be crazy so So that's what I did. I recorded it and had it ready for release. I am the voice in the wind and the pouring rain. I am the voice of your hunger and pain. I am the voice that always is calling you. I am the voice I will remain. I am the voice in the fields when the summer's gone. The dance of the leaves when the autumn winds blow. Do I sleep through all the cold winter long? I am the force that in springtime will grow. 
people love it. They adore it. And I love it. I love to sing it. And so I suppose I wanted to show, firstly, that yes, this song belongs with orchestra for me. Um, and secondly, the song continues to be incredibly relevant and an incredibly powerful force in my life. Did you ever at some point grow really tired of the song? Never. I've never grown tired of it. It's a really strange thing that happens with this song. It's not um, it's not a normal song in a sense of it doesn't just have like a verse and a chorus and a middle eight. And, you know, it, it's a strange kind of a song. Um, when you start to sing it, it has that kind of opening chant thing. And then it just it's it's like this phrase that just gets repeated and repeated and repeated over and over again. And it's, it's it becomes really mesmeric, you know, as a litany. You get really hypnotized by it. It's quite meditative. So when you when you start to sing it, um, the lyric trips on and follows on on its own in an almost an automatic way. Um, because I know it so well now, it comes out in the same way as if you were a religious person, the same way you might say a prayer. Do you see what I mean? Yes. If somebody is a religious person, they know their prayers by heart since they're a child and they say the prayer and they don't necessarily think entirely of every syllable of every word they're saying, except instead they they think of how that prayer makes them feel, where it makes them go to. Does it bring them closer to to the person they're petitioning in their prayer? And so with this song, it's kind of similar. As soon as I step into it, as soon as I start to perform it, it is literally like stepping into this space where I am taken along uh, for a journey. I happen to be the person driving the car, but I don't feel that at the time. And it never, ever, ever gets tired. And it has never, I've never performed it the same way twice ever in my life. And so... Um, the tricky thing for me when I was learning it was to, to learn where to put the breaths because there isn't much of a space to take breaths. And I have to, you can hear on the one I did in 96, I'm taking like these really gulpy breaths. I hadn't perfected the way of singing in a breathy way and take breaths at the same time. Because when you sing classically, you don't use as much breath. Whereas you're singing breathily, you use a lot of breath. So, um, so I've now perfected that. That's not tricky for me anymore. And so I just, I actually don't think about it anymore. I What are you doing today in your life? I'm talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, apart from that. <laughs> oh, well, you know, you spoke about this album, Eru. And um, and it's an album that I'm so excited to share with people because it's, um, yeah, it's all new material to a large extent. Um, or, and some traditional material, some Irish language, uh, but all with, the Orti Concert Orchestra. It's a very, it was a very ambitious and a big production. And and so I was so glad to get that finished and released this year. So naturally enough, um, releasing music during a global pandemic wasn't the original plan. Um, so uh, originally when I was, you know, putting this together, the idea would be that um, I would be able to perform with orchestra everywhere. You know, I'd be able to present these scores. It would be really easy for orchestras in different cities around the world who were interested in having a Celtic artists to come in. They, you know, because I'm musically literate, I can bring the scores, I can work with the conductor, we could just arrive and present the music in different cities all over the place. And this was my very exciting, adventurous plan. <laughs> um, but now, of course, my liberties have been curtailed just as everyone else's. And of course, when you're an international Uh, performing artists there is nothing very international about lockdown so um 
yeah, so, so, you know, that's all gone on the back burner for now. So basically, I'll just work on my home studio a little more to get things to the point where I can dip in and out carefully and in a, a very um, conscious and socially distancing kind of way to to finish those things off. Um, and also, you know, I'm making some more videos because this is still a current release this year, Eru in 2020. We have a couple of videos made of the songs. I must say, I really appreciated those videos you made. And my favorite of them is for the song. Well, it actually is my favorite song too on the album, Hibernia. Oh, you like that one? Yes. There's a great story behind that, actually. That's my friend Sarah Class and I wrote that together. Sarah's actually, she's the only honorary non-Irish contributor to my album. <laughs> Everybody else is Irish. But she's Irish at heart. She's English. She's from the Isle of Wight, actually. And um, she and I have been writing music together since um, we were both so lucky to be published by Sir George Martin at the time we were introduced by him. And we wanted to write, you know, an epic song about Ireland. And so that's how that came about. Yeah, she she had written the 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 melody and the the music, the backing music. I wrote the lyrics to that one, actually. So but the lyrics are inspired by a really, really ancient poem uh, Irish poem called the Song of Amergan, and so the lyrics are in ancient Irish and they're in English, and also the backing vocals are in Latin, which I believe. So, so it's a trilingual song, and we had so much fun writing and recording that song. It's it's about you know again a sort of a similar theme to the voice in the sense of always we are the the people of this land, and we have a song in our souls that no one can take away. We are, you know, and I feel this is really strong. Um, this message is really strong in, in lots of peoples, you know, in lots of uh, cultures that are being threatened, you know, in the massive displacement of of people around the world and people having to leave Syria, et cetera, and other countries are just where they can't stay in their home place anymore or their home place is changing or people are trying to change them or people's identity is being challenged. I think this message is really strong, it's really important and I think honouring that in popular culture is is something that, that we can all do. So we made this lovely video of the extraordinary coast of Ireland and really beautiful Irish landscape. And because I couldn't be in it, we had this fabulous ambition to, to film a video, you know, on the west coast of Ireland. Um, but then lockdown happened. So I worked with a really nice editor who helped me make this uh, without me being in the west of Ireland. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, in the context, I think it works really well. So, um, yeah, I'm glad you enjoy that song. I like it too. 
I have never been to Ireland, but after seeing your videos, I feel like I must go. Yay, brilliant. That's good news. Uh, somebody posted on, um, on, um, on YouTube after, because I read and reply to all of the comments on YouTube, because I absolutely love that feedback. And somebody posted like the 6% Irish in me is really proud of being Irish when I watch this video. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that is fantastic. I love that comment. Thank you so much for this nice chat, Emer. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. And thanks to you, our listeners out there in the world. I hope you enjoyed this chat. And if you did, subscribe, like, write a review and tell everyone you know about Eurovision Legends. I hope we meet soon again. You'll find Eurovision Legends on Facebook and Instagram and all information on my website, eurovisionlegends.se. Hugs and kisses! And hugs and kisses to you. And when you're out there following Eurovision Legends, don't forget to follow me too. I am the voice of the past that could always be. I am the voice of your hunger.